Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. What is the likelihood of Irish reunification happening over the course of the next decade? With Sinn Féin, the party most committed to the unity project, making significant electoral gains in the South while apparently set to remain the largest party in the North for the foreseeable future, the issue seems sure to increase in importance and salience as the relationships between the different parts of these islands continue to be transformed by the fallout from Brexit. Writer and journalist Frank Connolly is one of those who believes that after a century of partition, a united Ireland is inevitable and that it's not too far off. In his current book, United Nation, The Case for Integrating Ireland, he looks at what steps might be necessary in advance of a border poll and what sort of changes unity might bring both north and south. Frank, you're very welcome. Hi, Hugh. Thanks very much for inviting me on. As I said, this is a book that makes an argument. It's kind of laid out in a way in the very first uh, sentence. It is no longer a question of whether, but when and how Ireland and its people will be united. Yeah, and I think that sentence in, in some ways may have may have upset people or, or perhaps preempted their view on what the book was about. Um, it was a bit dramatic, but it is followed by a, a second line or paragraph which goes on to say that it's going. It's not without its challenges. It can't happen very soon, and it certainly won't happen without preparation. And that's really what the book is about. And the reason that first line uh, is set out as it is is because, having spent two years, you know, researching and and talking to people and interviewing um, a load of people, as, as you'll see um, in the book, it seems to me that on the basis of political change and political dynamics on the basis of demographics, on the basis of even cultural change, but most importantly, as the result of Brexit, we are moving in one direction. And that's towards, firstly, a referendum, whenever that takes place, on unity. But secondly, remember, the Good Friday Agreement not only offers and suggests suggests the option of a referendum when, when the time is appropriate, but secondly, that if the first referendum doesn't come up with the result for Irish unity, that there can be referendums every seven years from that point. So I don't think it's, it's, it's actually too radical to suggest that inevitably that's what's going to happen. What the book is about is how, could it, how should it happen? How prepared should we be? How do we avoid the sort of division that characterised the Brexit referendum in 2016? And... How? What are people expected to vote on? What? Do, what? What are they going to be voting on? What? How, what do they know they should be voting on in res, in respect of, 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 of a future health service or education system or indeed the economy, the constitution, the policing arrangements, um, the devolution of political of political power. All of those issues which are explored in the book, um, are are really what this is all about. 
And I want to come back a little bit later to maybe some of those nitty gritty questions of when a referendum might happen and, and, and indeed what the result might be. Um, but you do extensively quote Professor Brendan O'Leary, who's somebody we've had on this podcast a couple of times, and he's made the point to us, and you make it in the book as well, that to avoid the the chaos that we saw with something like the out, the outworking of the of the Brexit referendum, it's absolutely essential to do the groundwork. He cites places like South Korea, where there's a Department of Reunification which looks at all the issues that might arise should North and South Korea be uh, be reunified in the future. So, in terms of that, where do we start with that? Is that a kind of a uh, a citizens' assembly that we're familiar with um, in the in the Republic over the last ten years or so? Is that the sort of model, or is but is that sufficient to the task given that that's within this state and doesn't necessarily encompass what's happening in the north? Well, you mentioned Brendan O'Leary, and it actually is a very good start uh, because Brendan has done more work on this subject going back. Um, uh, the, the foundations of his treatise on Northern Ireland, the three volumes, and I'm sure you've spoken to him about it, sets out the framework for how we've arrived at this point, including the period up to the, and subsequent to the Good Friday Agreement. And I try not to go back into the history because it's covered so well by people like uh, like Brendan and others. And I think there's a couple of things that are worth noting in relation to the work that's already going on. In the book, I cite a, a survey or what you might call a, a participatory forum, which was organised by Brendan and his colleagues in, in Queen's University, John Gary and others, where they actually set up a mini citizens assembly and they gathered together people within the north from both communities and traditions and, and none and spent uh, a day discussing the various uh, models for a for a united Ireland in the event of people voting in in in, in favor of such a thing, but before they did that they made they basically set out a lot of the modeling that 's required for people to make decisions and It was quite a fascinating exercise a very uh, obviously a, fo- uh, a photograph in time, so to speak, with a, a small group of about fifty people um, and what emerged from that day was very interesting. It happened in 2019 while there was still the suspension of the, of the Assembly and the Executive at Stormont before it was revived after the, the 2020 agreement. But um, in, the, in the discussions, halfway through the day, most people, for instance, on the issue of political structures and devolution, halfway through the day, um, most of the people, just about, and particularly those from a Protestant or Unionist cultural background, thought that a devolved Stormont would be uh, the best thing, that it would be sort of a, a continuation of the existing model where you would have an executive and an assembly. And that, in a way, would guarantee protections for the, for the unionist community, for instance, in an all-island model. However, once they went into detail as to what those powers should be and how long it could last and how stable it would be, the end result was, at the end of the day, that most people agreed that actually... A devolved Stormont with executive powers, given the instability within the north between the two communities, that there would be a danger of just sustaining that problem. Whereas unionism might have a stronger position, for instance, unionism and others from the north who might feel threatened by by being part of of an all-island political system, that they actually would have more protections because of the numbers they would have. Let's say about 20% of of the overall voting population um, would, would inevitably support unionist or, or like-minded parties, perhaps. And that's based on the, on the modelling of what would happen in, if there was an all-Ireland 
parliamentary structure. So I'm just taking that example because you mentioned Brendan O'Leary, that there actually has been work commenced. He's also involved in the Aaron's project, the analysing and research in North and South, along with uh, uh, many others from, from, from academia, including uh, UCD, Trinity, Queen's, London University, Liverpool, and, and indeed uh, University in the States, including um, uh, Pennsylvania, where he's based. And they have been doing work along a range of issues. For instance, John Doyle in DCU has been working on the subvention and some of the findings about what the reality is of the subvention that keeps Northern Ireland going. It's, it's the amount of money passed over by the Exchequer in London to Northern Ireland to pay for public services. It turns out based on that and other research, but John Doyle's is the most recent, and um, he's, he's basically broken down the figure from about 10, 11 billion sterling a year uh, when you take away pension debts and other assets and the money spent by the put in by the north into defense spending for instance um, um, land assets all of that comes down significantly to closer to about three billion euro and I go through that in the book based on on that research and that if you look at three billion or four billion euro even that actually amounts to about 4% of the Irish, in fact, 1% of, 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 of the Irish GDP, if you take the figure that the Irish economy is worth about 400 billion. So those are the sort of work, this is the work that's already been done. The ESRI has been doing important work on comparisons of productivity, North and South, and, and the importance of investing in education, particularly in Protestant communities in the North. And looking forward, they've also looked at the, the comparison in living standards. When, when you and I were, were young or younger, the North was always, in our view, a, a wealthier country, wealthier part of the country because it was tied to the to the British economy. Those figures have been turned around in the past 25 years and particularly since um, since the 1970s, where um, life expectation is shorter in the North, uh, capita per head is smaller. And these are these are quite dramatic comparisons. And, and the people who've done that uh, particularly Seamus McGuinness and Adele Bergen in the SRI have come up with very, very recent figures that challenge what you might say is the, is the orthodox view that, that, um, that, that the economy here is catching up on the North. I know that most people would accept that the North now is, is quite a, uh, a poor relation of, 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 the, of, of a failing British economy. Um, but that's, that's another, another discussion. Indeed, and there's, there's a huge amount of very interesting stuff in what you say there. That that example you gave of that project in in 2019, I, I found particularly interesting, um, partly because it uh, confirmed my own strongly held belief that if there is to be a united Ireland, that that perpetuating the the unsuccessful stateless set up a hundred years ago, largely for sectarian and gerrymandering reasons, is not necessarily the way to go about it. Although one might well look at some other form of federalised government or stronger local government in in the United Ireland. But what I also thought was interesting about that particular example was that you, as I take it, as I read it in the book, you started from a position where it was, it was thought that that maintaining Northern Ireland confederally would be a good compromise to make to unionists. But when there were actually unionists in the room um, and they were discussing and considering well how their rights might best be protected. That proved quite quickly not to be the case. That there were there were better ways of doing that, and I suppose that brings us to the really thorny question, isn't it? Which is that you, you can accept your contention and Brendan O'Leary's contention and and the rest of them that this process needs to get underway. We need to start holding all these questions about the economy and health and education up to the light. 
But are we really going to have unionists in the room? I know we'll have some unionists. You have some unionists in your book. But we don't really have representatives of the larger unionist political parties or the sort of leading mainstream unionist thinkers, do we? Well, and that's a, a very important. And you're right, it is the fundamental question because what the Good Friday Agreement offered was to the unionist community, and this was, a, this was something that, you know, the late David Trimble, who's just passed away, uh, saw as the great achievement of the Good Friday Agreement was that the unionist population, his voters, his supporters, his community, were told that the, 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 as long as the majority in the North wanted to remain part of the union, they would do so. And that was a very important concession. And that was in exchange partly for the, the, um, the, the abolition of the Articles 2 and 3, the, the so-called claim, the territorial claim in the Irish Constitution. But equally, the Good Friday Agreement said that when the time is right, and it's basically down to a decision, which is another matter of the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland, to decide when the time is right that uh, there should be a referendum, allowing those of a nationalist persuasion and background to vindicate their uh, their aspirations, say, to be part of the United Ireland. And we're now coming to that point. So we're now coming to that point for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, demographics, the political change. Look at the situation in, in, in even in the executive now where, where Sinn Féin are the largest party. Um, nationalists have a, have, a, have a majority. They're going to have the first minister. Um, all of these things are, 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 are the outworkings of what's happened in the last 25 years since or 24 years since the agreement was, was signed. So the question is, how are unionists going to engage in the debate? A number of people who've, who've reviewed the book, including, including a unionist, uh, Alex Kane, who, who I thought gave it a fair wind, did make the point, what's in this for us? Because to be fair, the book is not about convincing unionists not to be unionist. The book is about what a United could look, a United Ireland could look like and how do we get there and how is it done in a way that satisfies the demands of significant numbers, the majority of people in the North and hopefully a comfortable majority of people in the North, that their future would lie in a united Ireland within the European Union, for instance, which is a concern of many across the, all the communities in the north, they're, they're not happy. 56% of people voted uh, to remain in the European Union in the Brexit referendum. So there's a serious dislocation there. And as I said earlier, that's what's feeding uh, this discussion uh, and intensifying the discussion. So going back to the point, I'm not expecting, and I did not ask Geoffrey Donaldson to give me his views on a united Ireland, because Geoffrey's position is often stated, and I repeat it in the book. In fact, there's a whole narrative where, where I look at the statements being made by various unionist leaders and, and, and leaders in the South, and indeed in the US and in Britain and in Europe. And the different expressions that are there do not include unionists saying, OK, let's fold our tent, we'll agree to get involved in this discussion. Because the first time a unionist leader says, I'm prepared to sit down and discuss with the Irish government through the Shared Islander uh, Unit are with the with with the um, uh, individual parties, or indeed with Sinn Féin, um, or with the European Union, which would like to see a united Ireland within Europe. Let's let's face it. Um, the first time they do that, they're going to be savaged by their own community who aren't ready for that discussion, aren't ready for their leaders to sit down and discuss in a de Klerk type fashion that um, let's reorganise, let's discuss our position in a new Ireland. And going back to your point, I did interview people like uh, Ian Marshall, the former senator, who's now a member of the UUP. And I think he's a really fascinating interview. And it's not just 
his views on the union or on, on uh, whether or not the union uh, or how we get to uh, United Ireland or even discuss it. It's, it's how he looks back on the fact that, for instance, he comes from an area in South Armagh where the conflict was at its most intense during the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. Uh, he didn't meet a Catholic until he went to university, he said, to Queen's. And that's, a, that's, a, that's something said by a number of the, the Catholics and nationalist people that I spoke to. Um, but also what his, how his understanding of that conflict as it affected his community has changed over the years. He was, he was within spitting distance almost of the, where the Glenan gang, the Billy Mitchell house, where they organised the, the killings of dozens of nationalists uh, across that part of the north, um, you know, a UVF, UB, UDR gang, many people know all about it, the Miami Showband atrocity, etc. And he didn't realise at the time what what he was hearing when he was a young boy growing up about the, the nature of that particular conflict. Um, it was all, it was all, you know, the good and bad guys, the IRA, you know, were being shot in their homes and, and they were shooting innocent Protestants. That was the... So... Looking at that back from his perspective, Linda Irvine and East Belfast similarly are very courageous because they are prepared to engage in this discussion. Denzel McDaniel, the former editor of the of the Impartial Reporter in in in, in Fermanagh, they're talking about what's being discussed within their communities. And although you've said I haven't spoken directly to people of a strong unionist position, what I've tried to do is engage with as many people within the unionist community to tell me what's going on in there. And I don't expect to say to just to repeat it again, I don't expect to interview somebody who is a committed unionist or a leader of a unionist party and expect him to suddenly say, well, by the way, yes, yes, um, privately, we do know that things are moving in a certain direction. And we do know that around the dinner tables of 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 um, North Antrim, they're sort of discussing what's good for their children. But I can't discuss that with you in, in public. And I've had those discussions as well. Sure. I, I And I take that on board and I think that's fair enough. But no disrespect to the uh, people who I find very admirable, to people like Linda Irvin, um, that, you know, somebody who sat in Shannon Aaron is not exactly representative of the great majority of unionist opinion in Northern Ireland, or somebody who comes from a loyalist community but is exploring Irish language and Irish identity. It's fascinating and it's really really interesting woman, but it's not doesn't really represent, I suppose, what you might call mainstream unionist opinion. And the paradox that I wonder about is that the, the point which you make in the book, um, which I think is absolutely correct, which is that we need to start discussing what a, what a new united Ireland might look like um is there's there's an empty table oh sorry I beg your pardon there's an empty chair at that table and a lot of the thorniest if, issues uh and this doesn't mean that you have to persuade, persuade every DUP voter to vote for United Ireland because we both know that's not going to happen but the fact that they're not at the table at all and you 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 write about a sort of a sequencing where this process will go on I I think for for a number of years so that there is a clear picture in advance of a of a poll of what a united Ireland, what the parameters of a united Ireland might look like, but how does one get there to that picture with that empty, uh, empty uh, chair at the table? Well, I, firstly, I, I, I take. I mean, I listen. I think this is a really fundamental question, and I know that the objective here is to convince a sufficient number of people, and that involves a significant number from the unionist community that United Ireland is in in their interests. And the Brexit vote was a bit of a signal as to where the situation lies in that regard, because it took a number of significant number of unionists to make up that 56%, as well as alliance voters and, and, and nationalist voters. 
And I think the recent elections, which showed that 56% again, a similar figure around that figure, supported parties who support the Northern Ireland Protocol in the recent elections. These are what I call, what I would consider the long-term trends that we have to look at. Within, within that, of course, and there are people in the book who, are, who absolutely reflect what you've been saying um, from both communities. We can't rush this. Unionists have to be involved. That's stating, to me, that's stating the obvious. Emma Campbell, a, a young woman from an East Belfast background, doesn't define herself anymore as unionist, although she's from a unionist background, but she defines herself as left-wing feminist, um, you know, a supporter of abortion rights, and, and um, um, she's an artist and part of the ERA collective. These are people who are active on the streets. Un being, being unionist or nationalist is not what they describe themselves, and they don't feel that way, but they do feel uh, a relationship with people who are campaigning for, for uh, same-sex marriage and, and reproductive rights in the South. Um, I'm just taking that as an aside. Coming back to your point, the people that you're referring to will have to be engaged in the discussion. But my view is there is not a single block of 800,000 Protestants who are committed to the union. There are, that, that's the way it's presented. The, actually, people used to throw around the world a million Protestants that were forcing or bombing into, that people are bombing into United Ireland. I think it's much more complex than that. I think within the unionist community, there are significant people across uh, religious um, uh, organisations and communities within different cultures, as in, um, I mean, the artistic, in the music, even language culture, within the sporting organisations, um, and I include, you know, the rugby fraternity, for instance, where you have a significant number of business people who've attended discussions about a United Ireland because they see the business community. And this is where the protocol has also had an effect, have, have seen benefits from this protocol, having access to the northern, to the, both the, the British and the European market at the same time. It's reflected in the trade figures in the last year and a half. Which have, which, have, which have mushroomed in trade between North and South, arising from the protocol. You see it across what I would call what were previously the, the unionist communities or the unionist professions as well, where people within the legal profession and the, um, and, and, uh, the business community generally are involved in this discussion. So, so when you say, um, how are we going to get them around the table? I don't think you're going to get the DUP councillor or the DUP, you know, chair of the constituency party sitting around. But I do think there are forums that will develop and that's a crucial task for the Irish government and for the British government and the parties at Stormont to facilitate those discussions within those communities in a non-threatening way. Nobody can force people to sit down and have a chat. But you can invite people into the pub or into your local restaurant and have a chat without making any uh, conditions or, 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 or demanding anything. So in a way, I think you need to break down what I think is a bit of a myth that, that people within the unionist community are not prepared to discuss this. I'm talking to Frank Connolly about his book, United Nation. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back after this. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% .9 reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa... in the bedroom or swiping in the bathroom I said swiping you'll never be without it switch your home to 99.9% .9 reliable sky broadband
Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Welcome back. I'm still here with Frank Condy. Just before the break, Frank, you were talking about how unionism is not a monolith, which I think is absolutely true. But Irish nationalism is also variegated and it's not a monolith either. I mean, you suggest, I think it's fair to say in the book, that the electoral success of Sinn Féin in recent years has been one of the factors that is driving this impetus towards a greater consideration of the of the prospect of a united Ireland. But there are there are many other parties, both North and South, the STLP, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour, we know, we, we know all of them. And they have different shades of views, you know, there are different types of St. Augustine nationalism, you know, let's do this, but not just yet. Uh, and you're quite critical of some of those uh, in, in the book. For example, the Shared Ireland Initiative, which you talk about. Well, I, I actually am I'm not so much critical of it. Um, in fact, I think the Shared Ireland in, Initiative was an important initiative, and I say that, and I set out exactly what... Michal Martin announced in July 2020 when the government was formed as to what he intended to do. But I did say, and it's reflected in the views of others uh, who participate in the Shared Island Unit, that it needs to go further. Uh, for instance, uh, IBEC, the, the Business and Employers uh, Confederation, uh, came out in support of the, of, of the Shared Island Unit. Um, and in a paper that they published some months before, called for a doubling of the amount that 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 the government announced for this uh, commitment to north south cooperation um they wanted a billion put into a fund and i report this in the book um as opposed to the 500 million that was committed by the government now since that has happened the north the, the, and i've had I've been able to watch its progress because they have open discussions on a regular basis involving uh, business people, the trade unions, and and other social partners and interest groups and stakeholders, and they have managed to to support significant amounts of research, including into health involving the SRI, the the, the NESC, uh, and other um, and other um, research institutes. They have looked into into health um, in in some detail. Are planning to look into into health. They have concentrated, obviously, on a lot of the practical cooperation projects, which mean, which involve restoring the north-south um, road links that were suspended there. You know, the, the, the construction projects, the, the Dublin to Derry, for instance, uh, the canal projects. But my view, what I'm saying in the book is that in order to prepare for this, and you referred to it in, in, South, in, in relation to South Korea a while ago, if the government is to take on a project which is much bigger than Sinn Féin or any other party, this is a this is a, a project that goes to the future of this country for the next the next number of decades. If we don't get this right, uh, because we have to engage in it, as I've said to you, the Good Friday Agreement sets out the broad timings and perspectives involved in 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 allowing that possibility for United Ireland. If the Irish government doesn't take responsibility for preparing for it, and I mean in detail preparing for it, um, and investing in it, and setting up. Um, as you said, there was a ministry for unification. I think um, that, that Brendan O'Leary proposed the same idea. In there should be one in Ireland. Um, there should be a, a green paper and a white paper. It there should be as the Scottish did before the referendum. The Scottish Nationalist Party they prepared a, um, a a document of hundreds and hundreds of pages setting out options on on a whole range of issues that would affect uh, Scotland in post independence. Um, we have to do the same thing. And I'm, my, if, if, if there's any criticism I'm making is that the work needs to start now. Other are, the, there is an argument on the other side that 
don't frighten the horses. If we if we talk about a referendum now, you know, it'll only make matters worse. It'll be divisive. Well, I actually think it's divisive. It already is divisive um, within the, in terms of politics in the north. We can see that with around the protocol. But it's even more divisive if you know there's going to be a referendum and you don't do anything to prepare people for it. And and I think there's sufficient numbers already active in in, in I mentioned academia, but also in in politics, um, in journalism. And in, in some of the recent, you know, cross-border projects, the women's movement has set up a, an all-island women's forum under the National Women's Council. The trade union movement has moved towards, uh, has actually just agreed at their recent uh, biannual delegate conference uh, in Belfast last year to prepare for a referendum and to engage in the debates that need to be take, that need to, to be held to, to, uh, to further that discussion in advance of a referendum. So I'm saying all of this... Uh, and I would imagine what you might call rolling citizens' assemblies are going to be required because there's such a vast range of issues. It's not like we're dealing with one article of the Constitution. We're dealing with, with, with transformational, structural, institutional, political change. And, and, and imagine what that would require if you were just looking down from Mars and saying, how, how, would, you, how would you put this thing together, looking at this small island of, of seven million people um, divided by by uh, what is now, as you I think you said at the beginning, a, a rather failed uh, uh, partition arrangement. Some people care a lot about flags and songs, and lots more people, I would suggest, care a lot about education and health and those sorts of fundamental building blocks of 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 a just and working society. We have our problems uh, in the south particularly with health. Um, there are problems with both health and education in the North as well. It, it, it's generally thought, I'm not sure what you think about it, that the attachment to the National Health Service in the North might be one of the things that might be a drag on a potential yes vote for, for unity in Northern Ireland. Um, some of these challenges go so deep and they have failed to be addressed on both sides of the border, I think it's fair to say, in, in many cases. That is this going to be, is this process that you talk about here, is this going to be a complete rip up the 1937 constitution and start from scratch? Well, there's two questions there. One is about the constitution and others about the health and education system. Well, some of those, they are intertwined in various ways. <laughs> well, there, there is, but I will, I'd make a couple of points about it, okay? And first on the health and education thing, and you're absolutely right. If we don't get that right, you're not going to get anything done. And there is an allegiance, uh, clearly, not just within the unionist community, but across the community in the north to their national health service. Why? Because you can get treatment uh, for free at the point of delivery. The problem is, and this is what is uh, what's so interesting in a way about how this research developed in this book, because I started it in, in February 2020, and it was motivated by a discussion I had with the publishers, with Gill, about what you know what sort what book do you think would be useful now and i said i think the debate on this united ireland and a referendum given what's happened with brexit and remember we were in the middle of the brexit negotiations between the eu and the uk there was another year to go or less than a year now that was extended as we know but there was really a lot of concern and particularly within the nationalist community about them being excluded from the the, the rights that are that are given under European citizenship, as well as under the European Commission, uh, Convention of Human Rights, which were being threatened by, by the then Tory government in their negotiations for, for this hard Brexit and encouraged by the DUP at that time. We all know how it didn't work out quite like that. But that was what it was like in 2020. A, a month later in March, just as I was starting this, uh, COVID hit. And COVID opened up a whole discussion about the nature of the All-Ireland 
health system and particularly the public health system. And in the book, I have people like uh, Gabriel Scali, who's a public health specialist from Belfast, originally started his practice in Belfast in the public service and then went to England and has done very big jobs uh, running major public health systems in the UK. His argument from the beginning, not everybody agreed with him, but his argument from the beginning is that we should have an all-island response to COVID. It's a doesn't recognise borders. If you don't coordinate in terms of internal travel and international travel and, mobi- and movements around into, an, uh, uh, into the country, if you don't try and control that to an extent, and that will require cooperation north and south between the two health, health systems, um, you're, going to, you're not going to be able to protect the population as you should be able to. He went into a lot of other things about you know, uh, doing more contact tracing and testing. But one of the fundamental issues and what we learned very quickly within the COVID crisis was how the border areas, for instance, suffered disproportionately. Um, and this was because of the inadequacy of the response north and south to the to the virus. And that led to a discussion about, well, we, we now know when the when the health service was almost overrun in the north, as you remember, and similarly in the south was put under huge pressure, partly because of the manner in which they had got rid of so much of the public health part of the of the health system over 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 the last number of decades we discovered that we have two dysfunctional health services we have a million people on waiting lists in the south proportionately the same figure if not worse in the north we do have a private health care system in the south which is more developed and and developed at the expense of i would suggest uh, the public service but we also have a growing private health care system in the north um However, what we do know, and we've seen it through that period where even the Unionist Minister for Health, Robin Swan, who was very popular over his handling of the, of, of the COVID crisis, was being prevented and stopped for political reasons from diverging from the UK government uh, position. We know the UK had one of the worst experiences, despite what you might hear from Boris Johnson now, in terms of uh, fatalities and deaths from COVID. We had literally are arguably thousands of preventable deaths across this island because of the nature, the inadequate nature of our response. So to come back to the health service, we know we have two badly functioning health services. We know also that the political system, political parties down here have agreed on what we call the Slancha Care programme, um, which has been delayed, some would argue, because of COVID. Um, but it it hasn't been pushed as as, as rapidly as it should have been, as it was envisaged back in 2017. And there are the Bengoa proposals based on, 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 a, on a model of developing the public health service more adequately with more resources um, and more recruitment. Very similar programmes as to what the health service should look like in both jurisdictions. So it's not rocket science, and this is argued again in the book, not by me, but by medical pr- practitioners, that you could have a more effective a, and a more efficient health service for an island of 8 million people or 7, 7 million to 8 million people over the next 25, 30 years um, than having two um, dysfunctional health services. So that's, that's, that's the broad stroke on, 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 edu- on health. Education arguably is more complicated because you don't have, you don't have that depth of, of work that's being done. We have additional to that, you have a problem with the academic streaming in the North, which is very, very unpopular, but nobody seems to find a way of getting rid of it because there's political obstruction, again, on the union side to getting rid of academic selection. But there's much deeper problems because of the geographic divisions around ar- arising from the conflict and sectarian um, um, sectarianism 
in communities, particularly working class communities in cities. So you, you, everybody can argue integrated education is a great idea, and we would all agree that, although we haven't achieved it in the South. Um, but everybody would agree. But the problem is where people are geographically divided, it's, it's, it's very difficult to integrate schooling, particularly for, for younger children. However, there are voices, and again, I quote them in the book, in the, in the education system, who actually support the idea of, of a, a new educational curriculum, uh, the end to church control and interference in education, north and south, uh, the building of a model, a little bit like the Educate Together model, which is successful and, and growing in the south, uh, although it involves multi-denominational schooling as well as, uh, as, as, as non-religious. So there's, there's a whole range of issues that need to be tackled. Uh, but the most important ones are investment in our education system and not just in, in, in right up from primary, secondary and, and third level. There's a crisis in the education system, again, north and south. We all know that because it's, it's written, including in the Irish Times every every day, about the difficulties that are, that, that are being faced within our, our education system. So what this book is really just looking at the, at the difficulties is not giving the solutions because they have to be seriously worked out. But the goodwill is there and the people who know what they're talking about in this area have got ideas for how you could develop an integrated uh, all-island education system. Could we talk a little bit finally, perhaps, about just the nitty gritty of timing? Because this is, I mean, the thesis of the book is the clock is ticking. And we know that Mary Lou MacDonald and Sinn Féin are very committed to getting into government in Dublin, holding the first ministership in Northern Ireland and using that um, um, that political popularity and support and the control of the levers of government to lobby internationally, to get the EU on board. The point is made in the book that the EU should be a positive advocate, essentially, for um, for a yes vote for Irish unity. But we go back to the Good Friday Agreement. And as you said earlier, it is in the hands of the British government, the Northern Secretary, in the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, that the Northern Secretary should see that there is, is it a likelihood or a possibility of, of a yes vote? I look at all the information right now, and I don't see that likelihood in good faith. Do you? Right now? No, I, I, I don't think anybody would argue, and I don't even think Sinn Féin argues, that, that, that now or in the immediate future is the time for a referendum. Um, it, their position has shifted over, over a couple of years, I would suggest. But I certainly don't think, and Brendan O'Leary makes, makes the point in his book, in fact, in the conclusion of his treatise, he argues that it would be wrong uh, for Sinn Féin or anybody else to call for an early referendum. So I think the book is about if you're going to have a referendum, and it is something that has to happen under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, it's, a, it's the right of people, and particularly of that nationalist population, that growing, and as you can see, politically, demographically, and also, most importantly, within the society is something we haven't discussed, but there's a whole section in the book about um, um, and, and much to the to the upset of some within the unionist community, um, the, the legal profession, you know, the administration in the north, the civil service is increasingly being uh, uh, being led by by people from with a cultural nat- nationalist background. This doesn't make them all people who want a united Ireland tomorrow. But what I'm saying is that the situation in the north has changed. We don't know what the what the conditions are for a secretary of state uh, on on which he's going to base his decision for calling a referendum. I mean, the wording is deliberately vague, isn't it? I think it's fair to say. Well, it, not only that, he, there was a challenge in the High Court in, in London to, to make it clear 
to the to to the rest of us and the citizens of of both these islands as to what would be the basis of a decision. And the High Court said this is a that's a political consideration, uh, and it's up to the Secretary of State to make that point. Uh, clearly, it will be a a a political decision made by a British government, not by one person in the British government, over the number of years. But remember, look at what they're facing. They're facing uh, um, clearly at the moment a serious turmoil within the Tory party, which hasn't been resolved. But they're also facing demands for a Scottish referendum. And the Scottish referendum means that there's a number of, uh, of, of a, it has a number of effects. And that is to delay a decision on the part of the British establishment uh, to, to do something similar in the north, because at the moment they don't want to encourage a Scottish referendum. That will be a battle in itself over the next couple of years. The Labour Party in Britain has a, has a problem in that they don't want a Scottish referendum because it could weaken the prospects of them pulling together a coalition which might have included the SNP in, in, in to get the, bring the Tories down. There's a lot of factors at stake there. But bringing it back home, we have got to make a decision not about when the referendum will be, because it's not in our control. It's not in the control of any politicians in the North or the South. But we have to allow for the fact that, firstly, we should know in advance. I think the, the Irish people have a right to know, North and South, Protestant, Catholic and every other person has a right to know what would those conditions be that would that would trigger a referendum. And more importantly, we have to take into our hands what we can control and influence, and that is to make preparations for the day that that referendum takes place. And that has to happen within, I would suggest, a reasonable number of years. So when Mary Lou Macdonald talks about within a decade, would you agree with that? Well, I actually think she said in Australia the other day something around 2030, by 2030, by the end of the decade. So I think it's it's funny you should mention within a decade because uh, Bertie Hearn said the same thing about two years ago. Um, and it wasn't clear whether it was this decade or whether it was within a decade. But um, I think I think you're talking there of... In my view, if if you don't set a date, and it's something that Colin Harvey uh, has argued, and he's been abused for this unfairly because he's a he's a human rights lawyer and he has done a huge amount of work on the constitutional aspects of this. But if you don't prepare, if you don't have a date, it allows the politicians in particular off the hook. They don't have to do anything. And particularly governments who've got, and you can see they've got their hands full at the moment, given the crisis that we're in with the, the Ukraine war and the cost of living, etc. But if you don't set a date the likelihood is you're going to delay the preparations. And if you delay the preparations, well, then the likelihood is that when a date is suggested, and remember, we don't control when a Secretary of State might decide to pull that trigger on on a referendum for whatever reason might be uh, in the interests of a British government at that particular time. We'd be better off trying to get an idea from the British government and preparing ourselves on all those aspects that we've discussed uh, for for a future referendum and for what a United Ireland might look like, and that that really is what this exercise is about. It doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, fill in all the gaps, as you know, but um, but that's to hope. Hopefully, we'll we'll start the discussion. Uh, the book is called United Nation: The Case for Integrating Ireland. It's published by Gill Books. Frank Connolly, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon. Uh, we're going to be back very soon. Remember, you, you can contact us with your views and your opinions and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks to Frank and thanks for listening.